me, those of you in the auditorium, there are handouts if you don't have a book. Okay, and the handouts don't match exactly the pages, but they, they'll be close in material, but the page numbers are off because they're a different edition. If you want the handout, raise your hand, they'll hand that to you. Otherwise, we're headed towards section 3 in the notes, and if you would, take your Bibles and head over to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, I'm going to catch up to you there after we go through some other passages. The uh, Bible studies that we've been talking about is that whole concept of disciple-making is focus in on an individual, you tutor them, you try to mentor them, you try to train them, and then as well during the course of this one-to-one in your own life on an annual basis, take some type of discipleship uh, class, Sunday school class, uh, institute. We will offer periodic, just brief uh, workshops to help you in those areas. We want to pause for a second and just ask the question, as I mentioned, that several are doing Bible studies. Anybody this week get an opportunity to share the gospel? in some moment, some, some opportunity that you'd like to share. Anybody get that opportunity? We are going to, before we go any further, we're going to pause and we're going to pray. We, uh, we talk about this, but so often we say that we should pray and then we just don't. And uh, so a lot of you have been praying. Would you pray these next couple of minutes as we pray for individuals? Would you pray in particular for the reenactment that the seed is set and that we'd be able to create other opportunities to not only share the gospel there, but then to share it even further in the days ahead with some of those folk? Let's take a couple of minutes. Feel free to pray out loud with somebody who's next to you or pray Pray silently, but let's have a couple minutes of praying for souls to get saved, especially somebody you know. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for the opportunity to be able to have the good news in our hands, and we pray give us wisdom that we would distribute that to others. We understand our culture is turning more and more away from learning the Word of God. They want less and less to do as a growing numbers in our society turn away from religion and faith. And I pray that you would help us in this type of a situation to be working harder at being a beam of light and the salt to shed the gospel so that others may come to know the good news of Jesus Christ. Especially at this season, help us to take opportunity and use even the occasion we have as an institutional ministry, as a group effort to share the gospel next weekend. I pray that that would have tremendous impact and that we would see good results in the days ahead head, we pray in the Savior's most holy, precious name. Amen. There's a story that comes out of the Daily Bread, and I'm not sure if it's true as far as all the historical facts, but it talks about two monks that were in this abbey for a period of time, and they had some type of infraction. And so they were told by the man in charge that they were going to have to keep from talking at all for an extended period of time. So no communication with anybody for several weeks. Well, to pass the time, they were a little bit bored. One of them decided that he would get a series of flat stones, and then he would put some numbers, markings on them, and they developed a game through gestures. The story goes that they developed this type of a game. But there was a problem. There would be moments when one of them would win the game and he would burst out and say something out loud. And that was against the rules. They remembered that they were allowed to say certain prayers at certain times. The Latin phrase is at the very bottom of the paragraph that you read there, the dexit dominos domino meo. And they decided that what they would do so they wouldn't get into trouble is when one of them won or came to that climax of the game, they would call out domino so as a, pretending that they're praying and they wouldn't get into trouble, but they could play their game. Here they were, two individuals that were playing about some of what they were supposed to be doing and giving the impression that they were really being faithful in their spiritual disciplines for what that is worth. That happens a lot of times in our lives. 
a lot of times that we come and Jesus dealt with that with his own disciples, that sometimes that if we're following the Lord, all of a sudden we get into moments where there's a little bit more play acting than there is the reality of our dedication. And so what happens when those moments come? That's what this chapter is about. It's about individuals who already have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but all of a sudden, for some reason, some, something that we might do, something that we might do against somebody else, something that we get lax in, all of a sudden, we, we slow down, we let the fires go down, we lose our first love, we offend the Lord, we offend others. What do we do at those moments? This chapter is a critical chapter for those who are born again. And if you're doing a Bible study, you want to be able to take that individual who has professed Christ, which you hope by this point, and you're training them. This is one of those most important sections that you have to remind them that in just like our earthly relationships, (coughs) we have an unbreakable relationship with our earthly fathers, but what can happen is we can sever that fellowship. We can break that that bond. We can break that closeness at time. We can't break that there's a biological, that there's an you know inherent contact and, and body line that that's established. The thing, same thing can happen in this regards that we might hinder our fellowship with our parent. And so what we have to do is periodically we have to apologize. And you've been there in the role as parents. You know how this works. You have to correct, you have to instruct, you have to train on how to make things right. Well, the same thing happens when it comes to the spiritual area that we have this unbroken, this (coughs) permanent relationship with our Heavenly Father. We violate something and then what we have to do is restore the fellowship. Now, that restoring the fellowship means that we have to have confession. Now, when I say periodic confession, I'm not talking about what I grew up as in the Catholic faith, that once a month or on special holidays, we just go in and all of a sudden we kneel down and we say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been X amount of weeks. For me, it was X amount of months since my last confession. And then we start giving a litany of sins. And we were supposed to give the exact number. And so we lied every time we were making confession you know, with what we were trying to talk about and say and covered up a whole lot of things. We're going to talk this morning about what is a biblical way of doing confessing. Do you have to go to the preacher? No. Oh, thank God. Okay, I don't need to hear that kind of stuff. Okay, I've got enough in my own mind with my own battles without hearing everybody else's. And so we're going to talk about what is biblical confession. Understand that a lot of people you're dealing with have no clue about what this is. They have picked up from TV. They have picked up from other religions. And so they may have a concept of a false idea of what confession is. And it's going to take a little bit of time training somebody exactly what confession is. You who are saved for a period of time, especially you folk who know your Bible so well, you, you have to remember that somebody may not even understand the terms that you're first talking about. So let's, let's pick up where we left off last week. The reason that we have to do this confession, the reason that we have to go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness is because there's consequences. We mentioned some of the consequences. Let's continue on. You offend God. In the book of Psalms, we ended up last week with the story of of David. David committed a great sin. He sinned by having an illicit relationship with another man's wife. She got pregnant. He tried to cover it up, got the man, the the real husband, brought him home from the battle lines, got him drunk, trying to get him so that he would lose control, go home and have relations with his wife instead of 
fulfilling his military duty. The man refused. David had the man killed in battle by, uh, by means of manipulation. And after a period of time, David, as we're going to see, he offended God that he had a tremendous amount of conviction and chastisement in his life. But he says in Psalm 51, against blank and blank only have I sinned. Okay, against thee and thee only. He talks about that idea that I deeply offended him. Now in 1 John 1, I put up the verses, This then is the message that we have heard of him, and declaring to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Let's think about this for a moment. What's this passage teaching you about God and sin? There's no sin in God. Excellent. What else? Anything else? He hates it. You know, that, what we say now is kind of just going to be uh, repeating some of that, okay? The point is God is delight. The idea is he's totally pure. There is no sin in him. The point being he doesn't tolerate or compromise with sin at all. It isn't the idea that he says, well, it wasn't that bad, okay? Uh, it was only a little lie. Okay, God doesn't do that. There's nothing like that. He is anti-darkness. Okay, where he goes, he gets rid of the darkness. Anti-darkness means he's opposed to sin. He scatters. He puts that sin away. And so all these thoughts bring into our idea that God has nothing to do with those who are gravitating towards darkness. Now keep this in mind. He's trying to pull them out of that darkness. I don't mean he has nothing to do in the sense that he doesn't love and doesn't care, but he doesn't go with them into the darkness. He doesn't say, okay, the darkness is okay. They can have darkness in their life. He is going to, if it's, if it's you and me, he's gonna, there's going to be a break in our fellowship with the Father. And so it's very important that we understand that whosoever commits sins, and that includes us, transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Um, remember, at times when the Bible talks about the law, especially in capital letters, what's it referring to? Okay, Old Testament law, Ten Commandments, plus the other 620 uh, that go along with it. Now, in this context, we didn't even, the, the uh, translators, they put it down, it's correct. When it, sin is a transgression of the law, yes, the law reveals sin, but there's something deeper here than just the Old Testament law. Okay, this is talking about that sin is breaking not just a rule, but it is breaking God's rule. That's a whole lot different, folk. When we break some rule, okay, as opposed to God's rule. It's one thing if we break a rule like a rolling stop sign. Okay, that, that's, you can get ticketed for that. Yes, no? Okay, I should ask, can any, has anybody, no. Um, okay, that, that's breaking a law. But there's a far greater offense when we break God's law. And, and see, we get this backwards. If I blow up, my, blow up in my anger and temp, temper and say something crass and rude to an individual or to my wife, have I violated God's law? Yes, I have. Okay, is that a deep violation? Well, according to Ephesians 4, I grieve the Holy Spirit. Okay, and God gets emotional about that. Okay, and so we have to understand that our sins aren't just something that is just simple. And some, uh, one of my kids is doing this with their, their kids in training. They are now trying to get their child to say this after they have gotten themselves in trouble and they have a timeout. They're, tr- they're looking and they say, you have to look at me eyeball to eyeball. By the way, which gender has the bigger problem with doing this? The men. The men. 
Okay, we can talk and we can go like this real good and share, but eyeball to eyeball. And so dealing with the boys especially, look at me in the eyeballs and you have to say what you did wrong. And they're now training their kids to say this. You have to say, I have chosen my will over your will, Dad. The child in the first moment when they're going through his training, one of, one of the first times they did this, the child broke in tears and said, I can't say that. It's too hard to say that because it means I really did bad. They're trying to train that concept. You know, sometimes maybe we should do this. God, forgive me of my... And we say whatever it is. Maybe we should add, I wanted my will over your will. To just impress upon ourselves, sin is an offense against God. It's not something just easy. Okay, so we offend God. There is another aspect of what happens, and this is important, okay, that our prayers become hindered. Um, there's a passage in First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, I think it is. Somebody can double-check it. Where it talks about the husbands and the wives having good relationship, other, lest your... Do you remember the rest of the phrase to the husbands? Your prayers be hindered. Okay, that's not in the lesson, but it's a good illustration you may want to add here. So David writes and he says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now David knows this. David's been there. Um, remember, if we, when we pause and you're doing this lesson with somebody, they may not know who David is. What, what great achievements did David have as a servant of the Lord? What's that? He killed Goliath. Any other feats that he did? that make him heroic in the Bible. He's a good leader. He's an excellent leader. Well, what did God say about him on a personal basis? Man after our own heart. Um, what did David do with the temple? He didn't build it. He didn't build it. Okay, I, I knew I'd catch somebody real quick. He, what did he do? He prepared for it. He did all the funding for it. Uh, when we look at David as the king of Israel, what years are those, typically? Okay. Do we call them, like in a nation's highlights, we call them their golden years. Okay, under David, they did tremendous things. They brought the Ark of the Covenant into, into uh, what, what's capital to David? Jerusalem. It was only under David that it becomes the capital city. And uh, that, that holy city is uh, a dedicated city. So we have all of David's achievements, okay? How he did a whole lot of really, really phenomenal things. And he's known because his children are going to be the one through whom the Messiah comes. But David makes the comment that he says this, that, that if I regard iniquity, he is making the statement, and this is a truism, that David still battled with sin. Just like we still do. He still has that battle. And he says, if I regard iniquity, now the idea of regard, as you put up here, it means to cherish or to hold on to in the Hebrew. It's the idea that, man, some of, some of you regard your coffee well in the morning. Okay? Or some of you, you regard your breakfast. Okay, there's something. Uh, men, when we're napping on a Sunday afternoon, we regard that remote control. Okay? And it's still there even though we're sleeping. If the family member tries to pull it out, I'm watching that. Okay? We, that's, that's regard. Okay? David says, and this is important, David says, I don't have special privileges so as to keep sin hidden in my life. There are often people who will make claims, my sin, myself, I'm not that bad. And what, what will they say? What makes them not so bad that they have to really confess and gossip? Okay, I'm better than others. What else? What's that? I didn't hurt anyone else. What other claims do people make? Or maybe, maybe, uh, what's that? 
There's a lot of people a whole lot worse than me. Um, you know, I'm okay. I don't need to repent. Can, can people ever look to what they did in the past? Look at what all I did for God. Or not only the past, but the present. Do people ever say, I don't need to confess because I'm a... You know, whatever. You know, take their position. I'm a deacon. I'm a pastor. So it's okay for me. I'm a Sunday school teacher. You know, I'm a whatever. And so these positions. David could have said, hey, I've done a lot. I wrote the Psalms. Which, by the way, are you, do you find the Psalms beneficial? Okay, okay. So God listens. The point is God listens to any and all who are going to confess their sin. But any and all of us who do offend the Lord, we need to... Okay, we need to confess our sins. We need to do this. If we don't, our fellowship with God and our prayers are going to basically keep on dwindling, dwindling, dwindling. We have a relationship, but all of a sudden that fellowship, that answer to prayer is going to be something that goes away too quickly. Now let me point out something else. But with this, let me ask a question. Can you remember any instances where pain was beneficial for you? Something that you had some pain... In, inflicted or came to you, and it was a benefit. Like in what situations is this true? Okay, what's that? After surgery? How's the pain beneficial after surgery? Okay, there's a healing taking place? Okay. Does the pain help keep you from overdoing it? Okay. Is, is pain beneficial before surgery? Let's you know something's wrong. Okay. Uh, other other instances where pain can be beneficial. Okay, okay. So pain can be preventative for uh, for repetitious things. Okay. Anything else? Is pain beneficial for your kids? What's that? Sure. Okay. Is it instructive to kids not to do something again? Okay, by the way, should we inflict pain once in a while on kids? Biblically, we should. Okay, that, that sounds very harsh. It almost sounds like beat your child with a rod. Okay, and in our culture, what do we do when we hear those words? Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. But in my mind, I go, some people need to beat their kids with the rod. Okay. okay. Anything else that pain is beneficial? Okay, it can, turn, it can force people to turn to the Lord. What were you going to say, Ron? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I think you were mentioning as well. That pain. So we look and we say, okay. Some of you gave these illustrations, okay, that that um, you know, might alarm. Have you ever heard of people who've had a minor pain? They go to the doctor and they find out there's a more serious problem. Okay. Yes, sir. Were you gonna? That's what happened to you. How many times? <laughs> right. Right. Like there's a, I, I was thinking of a young man who used to come to our church years and years ago, the family, when they were living in the area. When he fell on a bike, some of you remember the situation, and he broke his wrist. They went in the doctor and they did CAT scan just to see if there was any other broken bones, and they found a brain tumor. And so they had to do that, which, which was totally hidden. It can happen with cancer. It can happen with other situations. So what happens is we look and say, okay, uh, the one that's really important is we can be corrected with pain, which will prevent us to continue doing something that is really dangerous. Um, it, it can happen in multiple ways. 
that it could be inflicted by somebody else. Uh, crazy drivers. You've ever seen any? Okay. Crazy drivers. What's the pain that can be inflicted by an outside source to get them to stop being crazy? Okay. What's that? Get a citation. You hope it works. Okay. So they don't keep on doing it. Or, they get a, or, or a consequence. You know, God's bank. An auto accident. So you have those types of things. Sometimes, and we're looking at the book of Job on Sunday mornings, and we know that Job didn't get all of his afflictions because of some personal sin. Though his friends were insistent upon that. But God, are there cases where God might bring in a God spank into somebody's life because they're doing something wrong? Okay, Hebrews 12 talks about this. This is one of the reasons why we have trials. And if you are dealing with a new convert, this isn't something that you want to avoid. You want to share with them, okay? But make sure we make it clear, not every problem and trial in life is chastisement, okay? But there is those cases um, that prayers, I'm sorry, that, uh, that offenses against God could lead to discipline from God. And just like you as a parent, the discipline, maybe, maybe, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm making too much of an assumption, but I think the norm is we don't pull out the physical corporal discipline and go really, really wild at the same level for every single instance. Is that true? Okay. In fact, in fact, when you were disciplining, did you, did you want to give your child a warning before, before you would do corporal discipline? Yeah, because you want them to understand th- that it's wrong. Okay, and you want to correct them. Okay, be, and you want to give them a chance. And maybe they just don't even know at that point. So that discipline happens. And so Hebrews 12 talks about that. So let's pick up in Hebrews 12. And you're sitting with a young convert, and you're saying, okay, um, let's read through this text. And it says, and have forgotten the exhortation. You, he says, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he... Okay. And scourges every son whom he has received. If you endure chastening, he goes on, he says, God deals with you as with sons, for what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without any kind of chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not his sons, is the idea. And so let's, let's make a couple of you know, observations. Your notes have a little bit of this. Okay, what relationship, you're asking this new convert so they keep with you, what relationship is God paralleling? He's paralleling, okay, okay, that, that earthly relationship, parent-child relationship. Let's ask this question. What emotion motivates God to correct us when we do wrong? It's love. Okay, so you may have to pause because we're living in a different culture. Are we living in a culture that says discipline is bad? Okay, we are living in that culture, correct? Okay, so here's a question. How is love displayed by discipline? Why would a loving parent ever discipline their child? To keep them safe. Okay, does discipline prevent more danger to your, your child bringing themselves, putting themselves in a more dangerous situation? Yeah, yeah, right? Okay, if you warn them not to go out into the street and they continue to go out to the street, 
Is your corporal discipline, I'm, I'm going to use the term, and I'll, you know, take me to court, take me to court. If, uh, if, I, if I discipline my child with a spanking, after I'd warned them and corrected them, is the spanking beneficial to, that, to getting them to stop as opposed to them getting hit by a car? Yes, yes right? Okay, why else is, would a loving parent discipline? It takes away the guilt. It takes away the guilt? Well, that's a good observation. That's an excellent observation. Any other reasons? That discipline is proper. It's a learning. Okay. I think we got that covered in the sense to help them avoid dangerous items, decisions. But is this true? To help them develop good personal character and morals. Yes, no? Okay. Because what is within every child, and we're picking on kids, but we're just, we have this in nature. What is in every one of us, in our inner nature, what is our focus? Self, okay? Can kids be very selfish? Uh, kids of all ages. But especially little kids, can they be selfish? Okay. What happens to a child who is continuously selfish and that child is never corrected and they're never reprimanded verbally or in some time out of some sort? If that never happens, what will that child become like? Oh, self-centered. How do they fit into society as a whole? Right? For your child's well-being and social relationships, isn't some form of discipline necessary? To help them to be able to fit in? I mean, I don't know about you. If I get around somebody who is all about me and all about my way and has an uncontrolled temper as an adult... I know how I want to have a relationship with that person. Somebody said it. You want to avoid them. Yes, no? Okay. So the discipline is helping them to develop interpersonal disciplines. The discipline is helping them to become a better person. You discipline them. I don't know about you. I would correct my children when they lied. Yes, no? Okay, I'm bringing you into court with me. Um, so, so there would be some form of correction because I wanted my kids to grow up to have honesty in their life. I wanted them to have an other-centered concept. I wanted them to grow up where they were socially acceptable into groups. And so part of that was one of the way to train them was some type of discipline. It could be corporal. It could be uh, corrective and verbal. It could be whatever it was at the level of where they were age-wise. And if, especially the biggest change was repetition. If there was repeated offenses, then the form of correction would escalate. Okay, that's a good way of putting it. And so God is saying in this verse, like a loving parent, and by the way, you, you, you may want to write down that verse. Uh, somebody remind the reference. Um, Proverbs, he that loveth, 13? Okay. He that loves his child will chasten him. In the King James, it says betimes. Do you remember what it means? What's that? Uh, yeah, the idea is early. Okay. You chasten them early. Okay. In, in early in life, you, you chasten the child. Okay, and so the idea is that we say in our society, and this is a problem, <coughs> this is going to become more of an issue. You guys doing the Bible studies, you're going to, you might get into a whole family, family dynamics. Does our society say, chasten children? No. In fact, it says, let them 
do their own thing more and more because otherwise you're stifling their development. I want to stifle some of that development. Okay, and so for these reasons. And so this may be, this may be a real point of contention in a Bible study. That you have to pause and you've got to talk about family a little bit. And some of you would be doing an excellent job in helping some young couples to learn biblical values on training a family. And so here we go. God is illustrating, and make sure you take them back. God is the one who sets this pattern. God does this with his children. And he goes on, he says in the, in the passage we read, okay, and already about God dealing with us, what is true that should be if, or of, it's right. What is true of someone who continues in sin but is never disciplined? They're not a son. They're not a son. Okay? And because the reality is they're not a child of God, like any respectable parent, God punishes only those uh, who are his legitimate children. It was interesting. Yesterday we were in a museum with the grandkids. Um, do pray for Pastor Tony and Christina. Uh, her grandmothers died, and she was real close to her grandmother, so they made a real quick trip to uh, Minnesota for the funeral. will be back early part of this week. If you need to connect with him on the reenactment, he's not here uh, today. But um, So we had their kids. We took them to a museum yesterday afternoon. We're in the museum, and there was a display where it's a hands-on thing in the museum. And, one ch- and there was a sign on this, on this seat that you could sit in and then do some type of lifting experiment with mechanisms. And just to show children, you know, leverages and weights and pulleys and all that. And there was a, there was a, a sign that was crossed that says, do not enter this, this uh, display without one of the personnel. I forget exactly how it read. But one of the, one of the museum personnel, Lester's injury. One kid... One little girl, preschool girl, she lifted up the chain and walked right in. She's fooling with the stuff. Another child came along and saw that that child was in there. So the second child went inside. And the two of them are trying to pick up something, and they don't know each other. Okay? But because I, I know they don't know each other because they're saying, hey, you. Okay? And so they're saying, hey, you do this. Hey, you, you do this. And they're trying to lift it up, and it's obviously, you know, it's not something they should be playing with. And the parent came by, and it was so interesting what the parent said. The parent said to the second child, Marie, Marie, you need to come out. Well, she's in here. She's not my child. She, you, you're my child. You have to listen to me. You need to come out. And, but that girl's in there. Well, that girl's mommy and daddy are responsible for... Okay, do people accept this idea that the parent is supposed to be... Res- well... We hope they do. Okay. And so the, just, and I thought to myself, what a classic illustration of what God's saying in this text. That he disciplines only those who are his children. Okay. And by the way, more and more in this society, you know, is years ago, I don't know about when you grew up. When we grew up in the neighborhood, parents could get away with disciplining the kids if they were, if they were all in, in cahoots. In our society... What's, what are you fearful of? <laughs> yeah, we'll be visiting you in the jail. Okay, so yeah, that's true. But now follow along a little bit more. And God says, this is the way I operate. I don't discipline those who aren't my kids. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. And we gave them reverence, respect, 
excuse me, respect. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of the spirits and live? For they verily, my dad, I don't know about your dads, moms, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure or their own concepts. And by the way, for own pleasure, um, I, I don't know about you. This was in my home. Oftentimes we got corrected, not necessarily because we did something evil, but we did something that irritated. Did any of you ever have those moments? Okay. Uh, my dad worked three jobs. So somewhere in the day he needed to rest. Okay. And somehow with six kids in the house, resting was a chore. And so if we got too loud and woke him up, Sometimes the discipline wasn't because we had sinned grievously. Sometimes the discipline came out of the heart of, I'm tired. Aren't you glad that none of us have ever done that with our kids? Yeah, we've never disciplined out of our own motivations here. So he makes a comment, no doubt chastisement is not pleasant. We all understand that. But like any good parent, he says, God has a goal for chastening. And God's a better parent than you and I, not just because he's irritated. He has a goal. According to the passage, take the person, mark your Bible. What is God's goal for correcting us? There's two of them. What's that? Okay, he makes the comment. If you go on. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised. And by the way, verse 10. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. This is really important. Okay, that when God disciplines, these are his two goals for discipline. He's not disciplining us because he's, you know, angry and wants nothing to do with us. And pushing us away. Rather, he is angry at our sin and he wants to correct it. He wants to improve us. He wants so so the bottom line of this passage is correction is give me an answer, give me just one word phrase. Correction by God is what'd you say? Beneficial? Anything else? Okay, that's your, that's your whole point. Okay, that's good. And you say, okay, well, why do we put up with these types of things? Well, we put up with some type of those things. We don't run from them because whether it be surgery or therapy, even God's correcting times where God is taking us through some form of correction, chastisement, it is all for the end results. And God says, okay, I'm going to take you through some of those things that are difficult, but it's an end result. There's a story that came out of a Christian woman conference speaker uh, that she was just so, gotten so busy, so busy, so busy, so busy. And all of a sudden, she bummed up her leg and ended up in the hospital. And she writes about this afterwards. She says, I'm in the hospital. I'm sitting there, and I'm complaining to the Lord. I don't have time to be here in the hospital. Uh, my life is just too... Okay, can you relate to this? This isn't according to her schedule, and it's changing her plans, and she's making cancellations. And she said, it, I, I, she doesn't believe in the audible voices, but she said, it was as if God spoke to me and said, I know you have been too busy. You, even have, you haven't even taken time for... And so I want a few days where it's just you and me. Okay. I read that, and I go, I think I'm going to end up in the hospital soon with a bum leg. Do you feel like that? You feel like it gets too busy you know, in your life? So there's discipline. Let's talk about conviction. This is an important part that we want to talk about in your notes. And I want, I want to point out something about it. Now, conviction is proof of sin. Okay? Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
It's the Holy Spirit convincing you. So biblically speaking, let's take this a little bit further. In Ephesians 4, okay, how does your sin, according to this verse, affect the Holy Spirit? You're, you're doing the Bible study. You've, this is real simple stuff. Don't, don't get caught up with too much detail. You're taking a, a new convert through the material. What do you want them to see out of this text? It grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, you have to define what that means by grieving the Holy Spirit. You have to, you have to explain what's that mean. Okay, what's it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? Put it in your words. What does grieve the Holy Spirit mean to you? What's that? You pain? You cause him some pain? Okay, some sadness to the Holy Spirit. Anything else? Okay, disappointment. Excellent, good. All those thoughts. The word grieve here, just for your information, means to cause to weep. To cause somebody to be upset deeply. Okay, so there's an emotional involvement here that is very, very important to point out. Okay, with that, okay, and and just for your information, now if you go back and look at this entire passage, the verses before talk about how you speak to other people. It's all about bitterness, wrath, clamor. We'll we'll reference one of these in in the morning service. It's talking about how you should be constructive in your speech. And usually when it comes to speech, we overlook that offense real quickly. Because we're into speaking other stuff to other people. And we can't keep up with what we say at times. And so uh, this is a really important passage. It's interesting. Now this is, this is you know, my uh, weird thinking. It's interesting that we can upset the Holy Spirit. So when we think about this. That God himself then has emotions. Okay, we think about this. He is so powerful, this Holy Spirit in this text, that he seals us until the day of redemption. But we can cause him to cry, okay, to be affected by this. Um, in, in our society, there's a times, real men don't. Okay, that concept. Wait a minute. God, God grieves. He's, he's upset by our sin. And he ministers to each one of us personally, so he has a personal investment. All this ties together. The grieving of the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's go a little bit further, okay? Why should this motivate you and me to avoid sin? Okay, we look at the Holy Spirit has done for us. He seals us until the day of redemption. In other words, we can't lose our salvation. Why should we avoid offending him? Show our gratitude. Okay, simply, show our gratitude that he has done so much for us. You don't want to hurt back, okay, after all he's done for us. So here's a statement. You might want to mark this. I think it's quoted in your book somewhere. When you sin and grieve the Holy Spirit, he will grieve you back, okay, if you continue in that sin. And so he'll work. Now, according to Psalm 32, this is David's experience. David writes in Psalm 32, he talks about how it's blessed to be forgiven. If you look at the first two verses. In fact, just flip there if you want to make sure we got this. And uh, make sure you've got this marked and you're showing. And, And this would be good. Now, reminding them that David was the one that offended the Lord. And David says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile or lying. So somebody has made confession. He keeps on saying, blessed, blessed, blessed. And by the way, in the Hebrew, when you read the word blessed, give me some other words for that you can put in its place. Happy, peaceful, okay, uh, fulfilled, good. 
And so you have those, why does he state forgiveness brings happiness? You have this question in your book. Because he knows by experience that sin brings misery. Look at the rest of this text. Look at Psalm 32, some of it, where he talks about when he had unconfessed sin. And I think we have some of it up here on the wall. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my warring all the day long. Boy, I'm so glad I've been forgiven. Why? Because this is what happened to me. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. If you, if you ask that person now, looking through the verses... Them, what, what phrases, what, what words would you say? How does this describe conviction of sin? What will somebody feel like? Unsettled? Okay. Take his phrases. When I kept silence. What's he mean by, by bones, bones waxed old? Can any of you relate to bones waxing old? How does that feel in the morning? Is it uncomfortable? Is it like you can't go about what you were going? Is it like this, that you have to shift before you shift? Okay. Okay, that's, he says, my, what's, what's he mean? My roaring all the day long. Unrest? Okay. We've got to put words, we've, we've got to put explanations to phrases. David's writing poetry. Okay. What is his poetic speech? What is he talking about? Okay. Is, is there inside, can there, when, when there's conviction, can there be like there's this constant nagging and gnawing internally that gives you no rest? Okay. He even says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. What's that? What's he implying? No peace. No peace. What's that? Heavy hearted. Conviction was to the point where can't get away from it. Can't get away from it. I'll sleep it off. What's he saying? He couldn't even get rid of it in his, in his nighttime dream. He says, my moisture is turned into the drought. Okay, he's talking poetic. What's he saying happens when there's a drought, okay, and there's a lack of moisture? What happens? Dryness. Things grow in your garden. What do they do? They die. And then what comes up? Something comes up. Yeah, right? Yeah, you know, the things you don't want to grow, they grow. So he's, he's saying, okay, I feel old. I feel weak and unstable. He says it, it's like this inner torments constantly. It brings me to tear after tear after tear that I, I'm crying. I've lost my fruitfulness. You know, he says it's continuous. It's lasting. He makes the comment, and it was heavy upon me. All this is a describing the conviction that he had from the Holy Spirit for what he had done wrong. He felt physically, emotionally, spiritually sick. Okay. Now, how do we get rid of this sickness? Let me ask that. Let me throw this to you. How do most people get rid of the sickness? The feeling of sickness. What's that? Pills. Okay. In this sense, if you're spiritually under conviction, how do people respond to it? If they don't confess, what do people turn to? Pills, it could be. Okay, they can justify it. What else do people do? They blame God or it's the wife you gave me. Does that ever happen in the Bible? Okay, you blame others. Okay, what else do people do instead of confess? It doesn't get better. Keep really busy. Isn't that interesting? Can our busyness become a substitute for confession? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Can we, are we good at compartmentalizing things? This is only this area of life. I'll stick it over here and I'll forget about it, but I'll go through all the other external activities. So you, you, you have this real clear statement, and then he makes the comment, I acknowledged my sin unto the... This is an important text. This tells you what confession is. I acknowledge my sin and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Thankfully, he responded. We're going to come back to this verse in a moment. But can we pause for a second and talk about conviction and condemnation? And I want you to draw a distinction here. We, I'm not talking about we are spiritually condemned before the Lord. We understand that. But when we are saved, are we still condemned? No. Okay. He says, he makes the comment when he talks about, he's, and he says, oh, who shall deliver me from this body of sin? I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Who shall deliver me from this body of sin? There is therefore now. Okay. He's talking about being saved. However, can we create our own condemnation when we're guilty? Okay, let's talk about that for just a second. Okay, conviction, if we're going to say a biblical conviction is a work of God, it urges you and me to get right with God. Okay, I think some of this material is written down in your book already, so you can highlight what you want. Okay, conviction ends the moment you confess your sin. The Spirit of God, it's done. Because as soon as you make confession of sin, he says, I will remove your sins as far as the... Okay. Okay, so that, that is important. And he makes the comment, He that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsaken shall have mercy. So we're talking about this whole idea of what do you do with guilt? You have to confess and make that confession. Now, condemnation is a little bit different. And I'm not talking about condemnation for the lost. I'm talking about the believer. The believer who doesn't feel forgiven or starts doubting whether they've been forgiven. That inner condemnation we can create or is created within our own spirit by Satan. Okay? That condemnation urges you're a failure. You call yourself a Christian. You tried. You failed. You might as well just quit. Okay? God couldn't forgive you again. And people, I've had people say this. I don't feel worthy of God's forgiveness. Oh, by the way... Okay, there's a truism to it. Condemnation continues even after you confessed your sin. Have you ever experienced this? Uh, For me, this this was real quick after I got saved. Is when I lost my temper and blew my top even after I was saved, it was like, I couldn't be saved anymore. Okay, who wants me to believe that? God or the devil? Okay, yeah. And so condemnation comes, and it's no surprise because the accuser of the brethren who is cast down, okay, this is future, he's going to be cast out, but he is, in this time period, he's accusing. Who's the accuser in this text? Okay, you got that. That's an easy one. He accuses believers, keeps up bringing their sins because he wants to turn God from us. Okay? Uh, Very simply. To whom does he accuse us in heaven? He accused them, okay, before God, okay? We're going to come back to that in a second. What hope or help do we have when we are accused in heaven? We have an advocate. Okay, that First John chapter 2, verse 1. We have an advocate. That's an important thought. Let's return to this, okay? To whom else might he accuse us? 
Besides God, who might Satan accuse you to? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, he also accuses you and me to ourselves. He wants you and me to doubt God. Just as he's trying to turn God away from us, he's trying to turn us away from God. Okay, so he, wants to, he, want, he delights in reminding you and me of our sin and making us feel guilty. Now, is there a biblical guilt? Yes, that comes from whom? The Holy Spirit. Is there a worldly guilt that Paul writes about and says, beware of? 2 Corinthians 9. He says, be very, very careful of this worldly guilt, this worldly sorrow. Okay? And so what we need to do is we need to respond that we understand conviction of sin only has one end to it. And that is us confess God's ultimate desire. And so we want to, we want to take a minute here. What is biblical confession? We're talking about this whole topic. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us. What promise does God give us if we confess? Forgive us? Okay. He promises to forgive us. And as long as we unconditionally confess, no limitations, the numbers, the nature. Okay. But also to keep on cleansing us from all sins. Important biblical truth. God has two promises in this verse. Make sure you highlight both of them. Okay, the idea is to remove the defilement, to overcome the sin in time. Make sure you re- re- give this hope to that individual. So the Holy Spirit works. How trustworthy is this promise? How trustworthy? Com- how do you know it's completely trustworthy? It's based upon... God in his character, so it's all about God's character that's in question. Not our confession, not our sin, but all about God's character. What condition do we need to make? Simple condition. We need to confess. We need to confess our sins. Okay, let me see if I can illustrate this way as I close. You ever pedal a bike against a strong wind? Okay, you're pedaling the bike against the strong wind. And as you're pedaling against the strong wind, what's happening? You got a lot of resistance, okay? And you pedal, 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 and you keep on going. So you're going strong wind, and it's, you turn the bike around. What does the same wind do? Does it make it easier going the other way? Okay. Illustration. When we go against the Holy Spirit, resistance. When we turn around and confess, assistance. Make sense? Okay, uh, uh, people without a whole lot of scripture can understand that that the Holy Spirit's going to help you to move forward quicker when you confess and turn it around. Repentance of sin. There is so much more that we didn't get to. Surprise. Okay. Well, let's pick up next Sunday. Thank you. Thank you for listening and for participating. Great job.